At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all be seated and good morning. Happy New Year. Happy first Sunday of Advent. I want to talk to y'all this morning, ironically, about endings. Here at the beginning of a new year, I want to speak to us about endings. So therefore, what that means is that we're going to begin with the end in mind. However, I don't want to talk to y'all about just one ending. No, I want to talk to you about three. We come this morning to Mark 13. This famous passage, this cryptic passage, this bizarre and disturbing passage known as the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives right across from the temple. And what we hear about this morning is the end, E-N-D, the end. Here's Jesus. And prior to today's lessons in chapters 11 and 13 of Mark, just before this morning's lesson, what has Jesus been doing? He's been performing his ministry on the inside of the temple. I want you to mentally circle that word temple. He's been in the temple. He's been doing stuff in the temple, teaching, preaching, arguing with the religious types. And then we come today, this morning, to chapter 13. And as Jesus and his disciples, as they exit the temple, as they walk out of the temple, the disciples sort of turn around and look up at the temple, and they are staring at it. They're amazed by it, the the dominating stature of the temple. And they're amazed. Verse 1 of Mark 13, coming out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Just look at it all, Jesus, they say. It's so huge, so majestic, so beautiful. Jesus looks at them, and he brings up the first of our endings this morning. Not one stone will remain on top of another he ominously predicts in verse 2. This temple, Jesus is signaling to his disciples, it's going to fall. It is going to be destroyed. Question. Question for you this morning on the first Sunday of Advent. Was it? Did it happen? Was the temple in Jerusalem actually destroyed? Yes, it was. The so-called second temple in Jerusalem was utterly destroyed, 
and leveled to the ground by a Roman legion. This all happened in the year 70 AD. And it's vividly recorded, by the way, even to this day on the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus located in that historically designated area of Rome known as the Forum. I will never forget one of uh, probably the best vacation that the Bolter family has ever had. The year was 2018. All four of us were able to spend three weeks together in Europe. And I'll never forget standing there in the Forum in Rome, uh, looking up, looking up at this massive arch, this marble arch. It was probably four or five stories tall. We were standing underneath it and we were looking up at the vivid scene carved inside the arch, inside on the inner surface of this arch. Looking up at it, you can clearly see the Roman army's triumphal entry back into Rome after destroying Jerusalem. You can see the triumphal entry back into Rome complete with Roman prisoners, Jewish religious utensils, even the massive seven lamp candle stand traditionally thought to date back to the time of Moses himself, stolen and ransacked from the temple. Something came to an end that day. The end. The end of Jewish religious worship and practice. From here on out, after 70 AD, from here on out, there would be no more animal sacrifice as part of the Jewish faith, from here on out, the Jewish religion would have to be, and indeed was, radically reformed and revised. The old ways, they had finally come to an end. See, the temple was no ordinary building for the Jews. It was no ordinary building in, in the Jewish heart, the Jewish mind, the Jewish imagination, the Jewish theology. It was the center of the universe, and it was the specific and very particular place that the God of Israel, that the Lord promised to meet with his people. And therefore, when the temple was demolished, when it was crushed, when it, was, when it crumbled and fell, there could be no more animal sacrifice. I mean, think about it with me. January 6, 2021 was a horrific day in the history of, of, of America when the US Capitol was attacked by a mob of vigilantes. But just imagine if on that day, the US Capitol building were actually demolished. Would our government be able to continue? Yes, it would. There's nothing about the Capitol in Washington DC that is essential to the American system of government and, and its functioning. We could build another Capitol. We could have temporary offices, temporary buildings where Congress could do its work. The Capitol could fall and the government could and likely would continue to function. Not so with the temple. Not so with the temple of Jesus's day. When it fell, something came to an end. What was it? It was the Jewish religious system. It was the Jewish religious economy. It was the Jewish religious faith and life and practice. From here on out, the Jewish faith had to have been and was radically revised and reformed. The old ways, they had finally come to an end. But y'all, this end, the ending of the Jewish religious 
life and faith and practice brought about by the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. This was not actually the only end. This is not the only ending that we are reminded about in Advent. We learn of another ending as well, a second ending. I'm talking about the completion of the Old Covenant. It's John the Baptist who reminds us of this ending. John, about whom we will hear next week, suffice to say for now that John is a transitional figure. He brings about the end of the Old Covenant and he launches the beginning of the New Covenant. We glimpse this truth in Luke 16, 16, when Jesus says, the law and the prophets were in effect until John came. With the emergence of John, you see, something changes, something has changed. John stands between the times, between the times, the end of the old and the beginning of the new. But y'all, speaking of time, there's a third ending that I want to talk to y'all about here in Mark 13. Not the ending of the Jewish religious system, not simply the ending of the old covenant of Moses, but the ending of, of what? Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says in verse 31. He is talking about the end of all things. He's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the material world as we know it. He is talking about everything that we can hear, see, smell, taste, and touch. The material world as we know it, it will all pass away, he says. Like sandcastles on the beach, the world around us is temporary. One day, it will be no more. Here at the beginning of a new year, this is our third ending. It's an ending, by the way, that I've been avoiding preaching about my entire adult life. I've been doing this preaching thing for almost a quarter of a century, and I've always avoided talking about the end of the world. Not today. Not today. This is the end of the material world. As we know it, it will all pass away. Sandcastles on the beach. Here at the beginning of a new year, this is our third ending. And this topic, the end of the world, I want you to know is a theological minefield. Question on this first Sunday of Advent, how are we supposed to think about the end of the world? That's a big question, but it's a very appropriate question for the first Sunday of Advent. How are we supposed to think about the end of the world? Should we take our cues from 21st century pop culture with its post-apocalyptic fantasies? For example, The Walking Dead, which debuted in 2010, with its ominous scenario of abandoned cityscapes dominated by zombies, ferocious and terrifying zombies. I'm thinking also about Cormac McCarthy's 2006 brilliant masterpiece, The Road, which the New York Times says or calls, quote, brilliant in its imagining of the posthumous condition of nature and civilization. The Times reviewer continues, death reaches very near totality in this novel. Billions of people have died, all animal and plant life. The birds of the air and the fishes of the sea are dead, close quote. We could go on and on. World War Z, I am legend. 
and the more recent Don't Look Up. Highly recommended. The more recent Don't Look Up. My personal favorite, though, is probably Lars Van Trier's film Melancholia, starring Kristen Dunst, Kirsten Dunst. Its portrayal of the end of the world is excruciating and horrifying in the extreme. Last but not least, just this past week saw the release of Leave the, War, uh, Leave the World Behind, starring Ethan Hawke and Julia Roberts. The executive producers of this post-apocalyptic psychological thriller, Barack and Michelle Obama. We live in a culture whose imagination has been captured by the post-apocalyptic. So I ask once again, how should we as Christians, as Anglicans, as Episcopalians, how should we think about the end of the world? I would argue that we should not take our cues from pop culture. You know why? Because in the Bible, the end of the world is actually not, at least not simply, a catastrophe. Let me hear you say catastrophe. Ha, huh, what are you talking about, Father Matt? I'm talking about the notion of catastrophe. You see, all of those books and films that I just listed, they all end in despair. They all end in tragedy. They all end in catastrophe. Here's the definition of catastrophe taken from the best, language, the best dictionary in the English language, the Oxford English Dictionary. Definition of catastrophe, quote, a final event a conclusion, generally unhappy, a disastrous end, conclusion, overthrow, ruin, calamitous fate. The Greek root streph, as in catastrophe, the Greek root streph means to twist or turn. You might say it like this, a catastrophe is when something turns out badly. Catastrophe, it's a, it's a very interesting word. But it's not nearly as interesting as another word. It's not nearly as interesting as a word coined by J.R.R. Tolkien. The word catastrophe is not nearly as interesting as what J.R.R. Tolkien does with the word catastrophe because J.R.R. Tolkien coined a new word, eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. Wikipedia says this, quote, the writer J.R.R. Tolkien coined the word eucatastrophe by affixing the Greek prefix E-U, meaning good, to catastrophe. The word traditionally used in classically inspired literary criticism to refer to the unraveling or conclusion of a drama's plot. For Tolkien, the term appears to have had a thematic meaning that went far beyond its literal etymological meaning in terms of form. His definition as outlined in his 1947 essay on fairy stories, I've got to read that, on fairy stories, eucatastrophe is a fundamental part of his conception of myth-making. Though Tolkien's interest in myth, it is, though Tolkien's interest, interest is in myth, it's also connected to the gospel. Tolkien calls the incarnation of Christ the eucatastrophe of human history and the resurrection the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. Let me hear you say eucatastrophe. 
Very good. See, why should we reject our contemporary culture's notion of the end of the world? Because they're all catastrophes. That's true for melancholia. That is true for Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It's true for Don't Look Up. But our story, the Christian story, the gospel story, the Advent story, it is not simply a catastrophe. Thanks be to God, it's a eucatastrophe. It doesn't end badly. The ultimate end of the story, the ultimate end of history is good. Now, how can we be sure? Is this just wishful thinking? Earlier in my sermon this morning, I mentioned three different endings, three different realities that the Bible sees as coming to an end, the Jewish religious system, the old covenant, and the end of the world. How can we be confident that at the end of the day, the human race will experience not a catastrophe, but a eucatastrophe? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you the source of our confidence. It's the fourth and final ending this morning. I lied, I have four endings. And the fourth and final ending this morning <clears throat> happened 2,000 years ago under Pontius Pilate. And at that time, God the Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, died. Do you know what came to an end on that day? God's life came to an end. In Christ, in the, in the person of Christ and on the cross, God died. But let me ask you a question. When God died on the cross, was that the end? The end, yes. But a catastrophe, no. Because you see, it was a eucatastrophe. He rose. He rose. Death did not and could not prevail. Jesus Christ is alive. And you know what that means for us, dear friends? You know what that means for us? One simple word, one simple syllable. Hope. Hope, perhaps the greatest of all Advent themes, hope. Am I now going to preach another miniature sermon here at the end about hope? Nope. We'll do that next Sunday. And for now, I will simply say, see you next Sunday on the second Sunday of Advent. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.